What did they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episodes. Today's episodes might be one of my favorites that I recorded. It's with my great friend Ron. Ron is the founder and CEO of uh, Generosity Feeds, which is a national for-purpose organization that mobilizes thousands of volunteers in cities around the U.S. to address the needs of hungry children in their area through meal planning events. And they've basically helped create more than 3.2 million meals. And this episode sort of didn't end up going where I expected. Ron had a really interesting experience where he lost his job and went through a period where he felt like he had lost control of his life. But instead of giving up, he used his experience to become a force for change. But that doesn't really mean that all your problems disappear. Founding a nonprofit was not easy. There's actually a part where Ron describes the, the emotional roller coaster. It took everything he had to give, and it's something that's so common in entrepreneurship, and, and usually people don't talk about it. So he talks about that emotional journey, how he got through his darkest moments, and the one thing that led him to start Generosity Feeds in the first place. We also cover a lot of practical things like why you should hire employees better than yourself, how to help your team play to their strengths, how nonprofit and for-profit companies can actually work together towards mutual benefit, why generosity is and, and has to be the new gold standard for companies, and then really like the hard and yet rewarding effort it takes to do work that matters and, and have an impact. And one of my favorite quotes is, what I discovered is that my pain was able to help other people heal from their own stories and I could become far more real with people. And again, towards the end of the episode, there's just this moment where Ron describes the emotional side of building a company. And honestly, both of us were not expecting that. To be completely real, um, before we recorded, I actually almost canceled because I wasn't sure I had enough information to record. And for me, it was an interesting episode and a stretch because instead of trying to plan everything, I was like, we're just going to show up in the moment and, and take things where they do. And I'm so grateful to Ron for, for just bringing everything to this conversation, just bringing his whole self. And you'll see why I mean that. Also, for everyone listening, I actually wanted to share some great news, uh, which is this week, we hit number two in business and number 25 in Apple podcast charts. And it, none of this would have happened without you. So if you're listening, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Every download counts, like they say, especially when you're when you're starting something out and, and building your 1,000 true fans. So if you like the show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate, interview, and subscribe. It really does help. So hope you enjoy this episode. Would love to, as always, um, hear what you think. And we'll see you next week. Ron, welcome. Sasha, great being here, man. Um, so you had a really interesting day today and some big news. 
Do you want to share that in the context of what Generosity Feeds has been able to do? Yeah, so um, yeah, today was big. Our largest partner is Mod Pizza, which is one of the fastest growing fast food restaurant chains in America. Amazing company, by the way, because they value people over profit. I mean, if you look at their value system, absolutely incredible what they are doing to change people's lives through business. And, uh, you know, every year they give us anywhere from two to $300,000. And of course, that's not something that you just walk into lightly. That takes literally uh, people's time, hundreds of hours to bring that together to make sure that, that we're uh, helping them accomplish their values and the outcomes that they have for their company across the board, not just in what they do for social impact. And so the great news that you're referring to is that we just finalized that agreement again uh, after a few hundred hours of work, on, again, on both sides uh, for 2020. So just really cool what's happening on that front, man. So for people listening to the context, can you share about some of the numbers of what you've been able to do with Generosity Feeds over the years? Yeah, so we started Generosity Feeds eight and a half years ago. And in that time frame, we have empowered over 65,000 people to create over 3.5 million meals to help sustain 170,000 children across America who would otherwise be struggling with hunger. So that's, that's the summary of what's happened. And every year we increase by another, uh, by another 20,000 volunteers every year. Just honestly, I'm blown away by that. How does it feel personally for you to have started an organization that has done that? Um, it feels good, but let me give you the caveat on that. People will often ask me, they'll say, so how did you even come up with the vision of doing something like this? And my answer to that question is, I didn't. I stumbled into it. And, and I can give you the backstory on that, but we stumbled into this vision. And so... I'm sitting here today as the result of eight and a half years worth of responding to great things that are happening and then living with the tension of great things happening because we don't grow. There's never development without tension, right? We, it's like the rubber band that just stretches and we hope it doesn't snap and, 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 and all of that. So it's exciting. I sit back at times and go, oh my God, I can't believe what has happened and what is happening. And yet it's every day, it's just saying yes to the next opportunity that comes. That's amazing. And we're going to get into the backstory in a bit. Uh, but right. before that, you actually sent me a document with um, a little bit of background. And there was this really interesting sentence. You said, the higher you rise, the further you fall. So tell me about the fall. Yeah. So, um, the fall was, so my, my history before being in the nonprofit sector and in the business sector uh, was I was a pastor for 21 years. And I was working at a, mega, at, at a mega church, as you saw in what in the story that you read there. By age 27, I was teaching national leadership conferences across the country to business leaders and to church leaders and nonprofit leaders. And... Um, because my own, of my own arrogance and my own pride, I got fired from a job. And that sent me into rock bottom, buddy. Uh, I, had, I, I was married at that time. My wife and I had our, young, uh, had our oldest, who's now our oldest child, right? Our first child that was a year and a half old. 
we were completely out of money. We had to move in with friends. We lived with them for a while. Then we had to move in with my parents. Can you imagine being 27 years old and moving in with your parents again with a child? It's crazy, right? And so at that point, I had to rebuild. I had to rebuild life again. How did that feel for you personally um, at that point? I mean, oh God, you're sort of feel like you're at the top of your game. You're doing all of these conferences nationally, and then you get fired. Right. It hurt like hell. In fact, it, it took me about eight years before I could even tell anyone that that's what happened. You know how you kind of, when people get fired, we kind of hide the truth, right? And I did that for eight years before I went, wait a minute, you know what? I need to embrace the, the pain of that story. And because what I began discovering is that as I br- embraced the pain of it, and even what I did to cause it because of my own arrogance at the time, my own pride at the time. Can you go into that? Yeah, I can. Um, I'll, I'll finish that sentence and hit that is what I discovered is that my pain was, was, being, was able to help other people heal from their own stories. And I could become far more real with people. So for me, I always had this, I always had this vision because of the way I'm wired of being in what we know in America now as a mega church. And so I arrived, right? I absolutely arrived. And I won't go into the details of the story, but let's just say my boss and I did not see eye to eye on how things should be done. And he was more seasoned than I, but here I was the guy teaching people how to do it across the country. And he wasn't, right? So to a 27-year-old who has a 40-year-old boss who thinks he knows what he's saying, but I'm the guy teaching thousands of leaders across the country how to do this. Dude, do you hear the arrogance in that? I didn't have the humility to, to humble myself to my boss, even though I thought I, may, I still think he was wrong, right? <laughs> well, well, I hear the arrogance, but I also think you could be right because um, I've been in those situations. Correct. And that's the tension, right? That's that rubber band. That's the tension in it. And so instead of working with him to come to resolution, I combated him. And eventually, obviously, like any good employer would do, they got rid of the guy that was the pain in the butt. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> so um, I learned a huge lesson about humility. And um, I've been asked before, if there was any one leadership lesson that you could give young leaders, what would it be? And it, it's simply this, embrace humility early on. Because if we lead from a place of humility, oh my God, people see the authenticity of that. They see the rawness of that. We can identify with them. They're far more apt to follow. It's, it's, it's not just trying to force something. It's not pushing a rope. It's being with people. It's, it changes the world when we get that principle. When you're hiring now, how do you almost test for humility or, or, or see humility? So I'm going to shock you with this answer. I got fired from hiring. Literally. I, <laughs> so, what was that? Oh, my God. So, so here's the deal. Because I'm an entrepreneur and because I, I love people, when I meet someone in the hiring process, I just like them and I see potential in them. And I'm like, you can do this. And then I hire the wrong person because I've hired them around the wrong things because I just like people, right? And I think that everyone can do what it takes. So fortunately in my story, Sasha, I had hired a couple people that are freaking better at me than me. They're just better than me at implementing business. And here's what they did. 
Because I hired people who were better than me, they started firing me from the jobs I wasn't good at in my own company. And so the fun part of this is I've been fired from more positions in my own company than people we've fired. And so one of those jobs I got fired from was hiring. And as a result, um, we have people in place, our, our hiring team that's in place, they know how to read the character of a person. So I think there are three C's that go into hiring. We hired a character, competency, uh-oh, uh-oh, character, competency, and um, chemistry. Character, competency, chemistry. And when we hire, we, we do what we call putting skin in the game. In order for someone to join our team, they have to go through a training process with us and not be paid. So unless their heart is in it with us, they're not signing up. We don't have a team member on board that's in it for the money. Now, we believe in paying people what they're worth. So don't get me, don't confuse those, right? They, we have to pay people what they're worth and compensate them for the value that they bring to the company and to our mission and to the people we get to work with across the country. But they're in it first for passion. And I think that has been a, that's been a huge piece in, in our team now finding the right people. I found two right people. They fired me from the jobs I sucked at. And then they started hiring great people based on the three C's and based on passion. I love how you're testing for passion and that. And we're going to get into just the hiring and kind of like how you built your team. But before that, so you're 27. Right. You have to move back in. Yep. What happens next? I start searching for a job. Uh, it takes nine months. I liquidate every asset I have to the point that I try to go get government support and food stamps. How does that feel um, from sort of coaching nationally to now having to go get food stamps? Um, yeah. Okay. So the feeling, I felt broken. I felt, um, I felt broken. I felt hurt, felt broken and hurt. And there's probably more emotions that come with that, but that was the, that was the, the brunt of what I was feeling was broken and hurt. Yeah. It was a dark, it was a dark season, man. Dark season. Wow. And so then what happens? So then eventually after nine months, I, I landed a job. Interestingly enough, Again, I shared with you, my passion was to work in very large churches. I found a church the same size that was willing to give me kind of what I felt like was a second chance, right? And it was a beautiful hand and glove fit. Our values aligned, um, our vision aligned, the position they hired me for fit who I was, and as a result, was able to take the area of leadership that they gave me and, and triple it over the next five years. So again, I saw remarkable results. And so what I learned through that was I either need to be, I either need to be re-engineering something and thus building it, or I need to just be building something from scratch, but never maintaining. I can't maintain. If you ask me to maintain everything, my soul dies. But in order for that to happen, I had to be in an environment. And fortunately, I had a boss that could do this. I had to be in an environment where I felt safe. And so even as I questioned the leadership, because I think we all in, in, in our leadership roles, we're all under leadership too. 
Here I am, the founder and CEO of a national nonprofit. I'm still under leadership. Mm -hmm. I have a board of directors I respond to. So we're always, all, we're always under leadership. Here's the principle that I learned in, in this particular moment was this, is that the moment I started questioning leadership, the leaders over me, I would sit down over lunch with the one that I was questioning and just start asking questions because the reason that trust dissolves in relationships or in business relationships is because of a lack of communicating, of a lack of communication. It's a lack of understanding. And so if we can live a Stephen Covey's principle of seek first to understand and then to be understood, it actually establishes the trust that we need to create environments where we can thrive and the people around us and with us can thrive. I think it's such an important lesson um, because especially in the world right now, people just have their own viewpoints and they're trying to put their viewpoints out so fast that I don't think people are listening anymore. Yeah, I agree. And of course, we then love going on social media. We see this all the time, right? And it's just like we spout off our, our, our idea, our agenda. And it usually is just blasting a group that we don't understand. And if we can just sit back and listen to people who don't think like us, don't look like us, don't believe like us, if we could just take time to sit back and listen, all of a sudden, I think we begin to understand that we have more in common than we have in differences. We're all human. We're all human beings. We're all in this, this human experience. And the reality is, most people want what's best for the other, for other people around them. So let's just sit down and listen. Amazing how politics would change too if that happened, huh? <laughs> Definitely. Um, we don't, we don't need to go down that rabbit trail, but it's, it's true to all of life, right? So you, where, where does that understanding for you come from? Did you always have that or? It, well, it came from Covey's book when I was, when I was 23, I was reading the seven habits of highly effective people every, literally every day on the train into Philadelphia when I was going to work. And I had a manager at that time, one of the strongest female leaders I've ever sat under. I mean, she's just remarkable to the point that one day, just again, side story, she was doing a review on all the employees and she called me into her office and she goes, Hey, so how do you think you're doing in your job? And I said, I think you're, I'm the best employee you've got. Can you hear my arrogance again, right? I love that. Yeah. What a problem, dude. <laughs> so and she looks, this woman looks me square in the eyes and she goes, yeah, I think you're one of the worst. I'm like, whoa. And I looked at her and I said, so that's shocking to me, right? I said, but can you tell me? How can I become better? That was my first opportunity to live that statement. Seek first to understand mm -hmm. and then to be understood, right? Because I had a woman who was willing. She was an older lady that was so gracious to me in that moment to actually walk me through it, not just throw me under the bus. What are, um, I'm curious, other themes that you've seen or learned about leadership through your experiences working at, at those churches and, and then through your experience now over eight plus years? Yeah, other themes. Well, um, we've already hit on one of them. Hire people better than you. Always, always, always hire people better than you. 
Um, I've also learned through this journey, delegation is the key to, is, is, is one of the, the foremost keys to successful leadership. As leaders, we can't do everything. It's about truly empowering other people to not just take leadership, but to take ownership of the vision we have, which means there's not just one way to get to a fulfilled vision. So uh, as a leader, as a visionary, I may have, I may have an idea of how something should be done. And I, I would like to think that my way is the best way. It's where we get this idea. It's in my way or the highway, right? That top down leadership. Right. No, flip it upside down. This is bottom up leadership. Let's empower the people around us and set them free to make mistakes. Set them free to fail. And when they do, then coach them in the process. Don't beat them up for it. So can you share an example of when maybe you did that and someone made a mistake and then you were able to coach them? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we do this in our team all the time. Uh, well, yeah. So let me go back in time. Um, our COO. Okay, so uh, this is just a few months ago. Uh, I was working um, with one of our uh, top uh, investors, which is a business, uh, to do a video shoot with them uh, to help promote what they're doing for social good through their, through their company. So I'm there to be on film and to speak and to do all of this, right? But in the backdrop, we're going to be creating meals for local kids who are struggling with hunger and everything shows up. You ready for this? Except the bags that the ingredients are supposed to go into for the meal. And of course, I'm livid because I'm the, here I am, the CEO of the company supposed to do this video shoot with one of our top financial partners and the bags don't show up, right? Mm -hmm. So I call our COO and I'm like, listen, the bags aren't here. And immediately, this is, this is culture for us. He goes, Ron, I was personally responsible for that shipment. Even though we have a warehouse team and all of that, he was personally handling this shipment. He goes, I'm responsible for that. And I said, all right. I said, we need to meet on Tuesday when I'm back in town. And I want to know from you where it went wrong and what's going to be done to correct the systems so this never happens again. I love that. You're, you're, you're talking about systems. It's not about that one person being responsible. Yeah. In fact, of course, this organization, I was, the organization knew what happened because I had to own it very quickly to them. And by the way, we did get a solution, right? So the video, everything happened as it was supposed to happen. We fortunately got a quick solution to it, but it could have been bad. Well, another employee from this other company said this. He goes, boy, I guess you'll be firing someone on next week. And I looked at him, I go, no, no, well, I'm not going to fire anyone over this. This is a growth opportunity, not a firing opportunity. Now, if there was a pattern, in other words, if this were to happen three times in a row and it's not being corrected, in other words, he doesn't implement his own solution, then we have an issue. But do you think that's ever happened again? Nope. Do you think it will? Nope. Because we solved the problem. We grew together. The organization, we became better. But that's where in our company, it's we expect our team members to make mistakes. We're all human. You're going to make mistakes. When you do, own it. Because either way, I'm going to know about it. If you make a mistake, I will know about it. 
but it's your responsibility to bring it to me, not for me to find it. And when you do that, I get to walk it with you. It's funny that you mentioned that too, because I think it's, this is something that's come up in another interview, which is we have this perception that um, we're all perfect, right? right. And, and, and that life isn't messy, but what if we accept that life is messy as, yeah. a, as sort of forgiven? And then we can all, through that imperfection, work together and improve. Yes. And that's been one of my problems. I have historically, just being really candid again, I want, I've always wanted people to perceive, I, want, I wanted people to perceive me as perfect. How messed up is that, Sashid? Like, and then look at the pressure in those seasons of life that I've tried to do that to myself, the pressure I've put on myself to be perfect. I can't be perfect. I'm human. And that's where I think we need to embrace these tensions. We need to embrace the tension that every strength we have in our lives has an opposite negative. For every positive, there is a negative. And so, in that, we have to learn how to marry the two together and even allow other people to pick up the slack in those areas that were negative. So what's an example for you of that? Oh, my God. Um, so because I'm a visionary, I can go to a, a group that you and I are both part of, Baby Bathwater. And I am so inspired by the other people there. And I walk away from every retreat we're on with these grand ideas, these huge ideas, mm -hmm. right? And I come back to my team and I'm like, okay, we got to do this now. Let's get after this because I'm just like, man, just take the mountain, right? And here's what happens when my team hears that, it puts them into a tailspin because I'm not being sensitive to the fact that they've got nine other initiatives that they're working on right now that they're trying to fulfill. And so I come in as the Tasmanian devil with this new grand idea that's going to save the world. And I frustrate my team to death. So you're probably wondering now, well, how do you solve that issue, right? Because that's a major issue. And I don't think I'm the only one that deals with that. Certainly not as an entrepreneur or a CEO. So how do we deal with that? So here's what we did. And again, I needed consulting on this. I needed other people's wisdom and insight on this. But here's what we've done is that when I come back with these grandiose ideas of what we need to do, number one, I have to put them in writing. I hate doing that, but I got to put them in writing. Number two, I have to present them in a meeting with all the key players around the table. Then I give up control, very key again, that's a humility piece. And they get to decide whether or not they're going to even move on it. In other words, they can say no. Now, if they say no, then I can bring it back up at, at the next uh, annual meeting and I, I, can put it, I can put it into the vision for the next year is what I can do. So I can trump it, but it's going to be trumped potentially six months down the line, not immediately. Or they may say to me, listen, we love the idea. We just can't do it now based on workflow, but we can do it four months from now. So instead of me just coming in and forcing people to do things and taking control to get my way, it's coming in, sharing an idea, and then tapping into the collective wisdom of the team to do what's right. And here's the beauty of this. Typically, they make it better. But it means I have to listen, right? I come with an idea, mm -hmm. and then I have to listen again. 
and they get excited, but then it's implemented in the right time frame. What I love about that is you've created a system and um, it's definitely not entrepreneurs who or definitely other entrepreneurs go through this. I actually have a client and mentor, um, Ethan Shaw. Right. So he actually wrote this post recently called My Billion Dollar Mistake. Yes. Where he talked about in his company how he would basically go to people and give this these ideas. And at one point, um, one of the employees in his company, Kissmetrics, um, wrote this thousand plus word memo. Yep. And basically called it Heathen, Heathen's moms and sent it to the whole company. And he had one of those moments where he was like, okay, I got to take a step back and look at that. Mm. So what I love is like, you've actually created a system around it. So then there's that. So every time, so you don't have to keep thinking about how to deal with it every time. That's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and we're, we're definitely going with this memento style, jumping back and forth. That's good. Sort of jumping back a little bit. Um, you So you've started your second job. Um, you've been there you said five years, right? What was sort of the bridge from that to generosity feeds? Yeah, so here's what happened. And this is, this is just a part of my own spiritual journey, right? I, um, I, became, I began looking at, the, at churches across America, including the one I was in. And I, I began asking this question. Why is it that we talk about loving God and loving other people? And we're not willing to partner with businesses, churches, or other nonprofits to make a difference in our own community. Why is it that if we, why is it if we really, really, truly care about other people, do we make them come to church on Sunday morning instead of going out to them to meet their needs? And I don't mean just the platitude because churches will do, churches will often run what they call outreach. Most people have heard of that. And I began looking at it going, why in the world are we calling this outreach? What's the deal here? Are we in and they're out? That didn't even feel right to me, right? It, it, it just, mm-hmm. it, so you can see where at a, at, a, at a soul level, I was beginning to really wrestle with things. And so I ended up leaving that church and moving to the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia to actually start a church. But I didn't want to start a church that was like any other church. I wanted to start a church that was, that was truly seeking to meet the needs of people in the context of community. But here's the, here's the next principle that I learned was this, that any organization, I don't care if it's a nonprofit, I don't care if it's for-profit, I don't care what it is. Any organization is what it begins as. It's DNA. It's like when a child is conceived. It's, there's DNA that is, that, that is put into place. And so here's what we did. We started a nonprofit, non-faith-based, because I wanted to work with anyone regardless of their faith. I wanted to work with anyone regardless of their economics. I wanted to work with anybody regardless of their, their race, whatever. I just wanted to serve with people who wanted to serve. So we started a nonprofit. And then from that uh, simultaneously, or uh, actually a year after that, then I started a church. But here's the key to this, is that what I discovered was this. Number one, that church never grew above 85 people. So just know that. And eventually, I actually shut it down. All right? And here's why is because within three years of working in the nonprofit, we had finally innovated the nonprofit to the point that we had empowered 600 people to create 40,000 meals in less than two hours to feed local children struggling with hunger. What was the innovation? 
let me give you the principle and then I'm going to give you the innovation. The principle was this. So many churches in America focus on doing ministry to people or for people or in their community, right? And I just looked at that and I went, all those words are wrong. We need to serve people with people. In other words, here's the, here's the, again, I'm going to take the principle one next step, and this is going to apply back to four profits in just a moment. So we, we need to get to that. Just make mm-hmm. a note of that. Is that if we really want to have an impact in culture and in people's lives through a nonprofit or a for-profit, it's more about who we serve with and less about who we're serving It's about, again, it's community. It's who we're doing it with. So, so many churches focus on, well, we're going to go take care of the homeless, right? Great. Who are you doing it with? Yourselves? Why don't you others inspire other people that aren't even part of the church to come do it with you, right? That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. So, I viewed this, keep in mind, the church was only ever 85 people, but we had 600 people showing up to do good. Did they need to be part of a church to do that? No, they just wanted to make a difference, right? I was just creating an environment. So for me, it was more about who I got to serve with than the children we were feeding. And as a result today, we're now, as I shared with you earlier, we're empowering over 21,000 people a year to serve with us because it's about what we get to do together to impact other people's lives. That's increasing the circle of influence. That's amazing. Yeah, because I think so many companies um, struggle to scale their influence. I think so many creators struggle to um, sort of build an audience because they're talking to their audience. Right. Instead of creating with their audience. Creating the with. It's all, so if I were to give it one word, it's all about the word with. So how does that apply to for-profits or just even independent creators? Okay, so I'm going to, let me, um, let's hit the for profits because it does play into the independent creators here as well. There are three tiers of, so of impact that a for profit can have. And, and most companies have finally woken up to the fact that people are willing to spend more money if they know this, this particular company is doing social good, right? Most people are waking, most businesses are waking up to this. So there are three tiers. The first tier is this. It's the transaction, the transaction level. And we all know the level. One for one. You buy, I give, popularized by Tom's about 15 years ago, right? That's not a with, that's a two. You do this, I'll do that. The next level is what I would refer to as the transformation level. This is the companies that are saying, listen, we want to give our employees three hours a year paid time to go serve with the volunteer or with the organizations they want to serve with. Uh, this is the companies that are saying we're going to match up to $5,000 of each employee's gifts to any given organization. Salesforce is brilliant at this model. They do an amazing job with it. Okay. And we, we love working with Salesforce, but again, it's still limited. It's, it's the with, it's kind of the company sending out the people, but you don't even necessarily have executives working or managers working with employees. It's more just an empowerment of a value system, which is a good thing. But now let's talk about the third level. And the third level is what is referred to, I refer to as the transcendent level. 
This is when a company says, wait a minute, let's align our values, our product, and our resources with our employees, our company, our stakeholders, and here's the, here's the caveat that answers your question, and our customers. The key is getting in companies to serve with their customers, inspiring good. Why would a company invest, let's say, $10,000 to do good and just empower their employees when they can invest $10,000 and get their customers serving with their employees? And then I have to ask this question. When that happens, and I actually know the answer, everybody here does. But if a, if a company is serving with their employee, with their customers and empowering and inspiring them to do good with them, not just be a transaction, what do you think is going to happen to the loyalty of those customers? Goes to the roof. It skyrockets. Now the customers are just telling the story. So the talk that I give is, is one of the talks that I give is titled how to create a social impact model for your company that accelerates your business. Now, do we create these great models that are fully aligned so that we can accelerate our business? You can, but people can very easily read the heart, right? So the key is do it because it's the right thing to do. And as a result, the business is going to accelerate. I just love this idea of involving your customers. Um, what's, an, what's an example of a company or, or a or a company executing this model that that is they're doing it well. Yeah, let's go back. Let's go back to Mod Pizza, right? Mod Pizza is doing this brilliantly, brilliantly. So what we're doing with them, I'll tell, I'll share with you last year, and I'll even share this year. What we're doing with them is that in all of their major markets around the United States, we're bringing what's called a Generosity Feeds event to them. That's the organization we run. And we're mobilizing their customers and people in their community with other nonprofits and other businesses and their vendors, by the way, to create 10,000 or more meals in less than two hours to feed local children struggling with hunger. And so instead of just their employees coming together to do this, we have mechanisms of getting the school involved other nonprofits involved, other businesses involved. And so all these people come together. All of them know that, that the event is powered by Mod Pizza. So we get, we get to promote Mod Pizza now, right? So my job as a nonprofit is now to make for profits look great. Yeah. You know? And that's what I love. I love promoting the great work that for profit leaders are doing. Love it. And so um, to scale this, uh, last year we did in the ballpark of 25 events of these events with Mod Pizza around the country. I mean, the, just at their events alone, there were over 300,000 meals created for children in, in their communities who are struggling with hunger. It's remarkable. That's amazing how you've just aligned all the incentives and almost created this model for prof for profits where it, it's it's basically a no-brainer for them to be part of this. Yeah. And, and we take care of, and here's the tension for a for-profit, right? They're focused largely 
uh, they're focused largely on making profit. So they don't, most, most for-profits don't have, or they haven't invested the resources to hire a social impact director or a CSR director, a corporate social responsibility director. So what we do as a nonprofit is that we believe that it's our job to do that with them, right? That we become that mechanism for kind of for them. That allows them to stay focused on their main mission and yet do good in that mission with their customers, with their employees, if they, if they want to do it at that level, right? And then and to, so we can help accelerate their business because they don't have all the internal pieces to do that, but we do. We, we get to bring that to the table with them. And what I love about that is it's one of my favorite principles is when you want someone to do something, just make it stupid easy for them right. to do it. And so what you're doing is you're making it really easy for for-profits to have a social good model because you're like, here, we're right here, plug and play. That's right. Yeah, that's it. That's amazing. Um, I'm not curious, um, what are other innovations that you've made just in general? Because it even... The way you're talking about mobilizing all of these people, um, I'm sure that must not be easy to coordinate and and all of that. Um, it it's okay. So it's easy. Believe it or not, it is easy. <laughs> but again, only um, it's easy eight years after the fact uh, because we've created systems and models and processes that get that get repeated time and time and time and time again. Now, what we have done in the mo- in this model is, and this is really, really important for us, it doesn't matter what organization we work with, we always believe that we have a responsibility to accomplish their objectives. So though we have a model, we tweak the model based upon the objectives of who we get to, who, who we have the opportunity of working with. So how we work with mod might be slightly different than how we work with voodoo donuts and slightly different than how we work with Volkswagen. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, like how, so, so let's say like there's, a, there's like creators listening, right? Or companies, that's sort of the holy grail for companies or creators is like, how do you mobilize your audience for something? Um, so what can they learn from the way, um, from even like, because you said it's taken eight years to get to this point, right? from even maybe the mistakes you've made and how you're doing it now. And how to mobilize people. Right. Yeah, let me give you a uh, for example, we have um, we have friends um, oh. made in the shady, made in the shady. There we go. Okay, made in the shady. It is it's an e-commerce company. So the lady that runs this is n- never seeing her customers, right? So what we're building towards with her is this: is that she can run, she can run a hot map of where all her customers are around the country. This is a fun process, by the way, that I get to run with different companies. So she takes all the addresses, she plugs them into a, into a software program, and she gets a hot map of where all our customers are. Then we look at that hot map together and we go, okay, so we see a hot spot in, in Austin, Texas. Why don't we go do an event there with you? You fly out and you invite the, your customers from Austin, Texas to meet the founder of this company that they love buying their soap products from. And then after this event, throw a cocktail party at a price for those that really want to get some time with you and maybe learn from you or understand your values or ask you questions about the business or whatever it may be. 
So instead of her just doing the one for one, we're working what she's doing as well. So it's not when we talk about the levels, um, this is a side note. It's not just about working at the transcendent level. We actually need to be working in all three. So she's doing the point of sale gift giving, but now we can go into Austin, Texas with her and run an event where she can literally physically meet her customers and not just meet them, but serve with them. What do you think that does to the relationship and how, how does that inspire these, these customers when they meet the CEO and actually make a difference with her in their own community? And she says, by the way, all the money that you gave through your purchases is funding what you're at. That's amazing. That's the system that has been created. So it doesn't matter. I mean, I mentioned Mod Pizza and Voodoo Donuts and Volkswagen, right? These big companies. We don't just work with big companies. We work with Holly, with Made in the Shady, who is doing e-commerce and now has an opportunity to meet and build relationship with our customers at a whole new level that's built around a value system, not a product. And as a result, they buy more product. And it changes the relationship dynamic yes. completely because now you've met, met the person who's doing it. Yes, that's right. Um, so what was sort of the, I'm really curious to what led to the model and what were some of the mistakes maybe that you made? Because the way you describe it, it sounds very intuitive and obvious. Right. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't. Oh, no. <laughs> it was not. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've come to realize that hindsight is 2020. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, looking forward is not always 2020. Um, yeah. So um, what we've, some of the tensions that we have felt in this process, I shared with you just a moment ago that it is so core to us that we are working with these companies and these leaders to fulfill their objectives. I mean, that's really big to us. Early on in the process, and we still struggle with this from time to time, companies will say, well, you need to do it this way. Well, when they say you need to do it this way, that's not an objective. That's a controlling mandate process effect, right? Here's the catch. They're not in our business. How do you differentiate between those two things, objective and a controlling mandate? Because I think so, so people listen can understand. Yeah. Um, boy, so much of that is a feeling, isn't it? Here's, here's what it is. Um, in fact, we even wrote a document on this, bro. Anytime we're working with a, with a host, what we refer to as a host site, someone who's bringing us in, the moment we feel some tension in ourselves, so we need to be very mindful of literally what we're feeling or what our, our coach is feeling because we coach these processes. So if a coach is beginning to feel tension in the process, that is our yellow flag to go, something's not right. It's time to to circle back around, we bring one of our upper leadership in at that point and that company's upper leadership in appropriately, not CEO type, right? But a decision maker. And we go, here's the tension we're feeling. We have to be honest about it. It's about truth again, right? What I've come to learn is truth sets us free. Speak truth. Do it lovingly, but speak truth. So if we feel the tension, we address the tension. And that typically reboots the system. So when you ask the question, how do you know, it actually starts as being mindful to the feelings. 
the moment we feel that rubber band beginning to stretch in the relationship, we go, ooh, something's not right. And that's when we come circle back around. We just kind of have a debrief session. How's it going? How's it going for us? Here's what we're feeling. What are you feeling? Where we miscommunicating, seeking again, first to understand, then to be understood. Put resetting expectations. I love what Stephen Coons talks about that, that if an expectation isn't vo- uh, verbalized, then you can't hold on to it. Brilliant statement he makes there, right? So we, we recommunicate expectations both ways, reset the objectives, but we help them understand that our processes are designed to help them get to their objectives. That we've been doing this for eight and a half years and have worked with hundreds of businesses and we know what works and doesn't work. And if you follow, if we, if, 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 if you follow the process that we're tweaking for your outcomes, you're going to get them. And in nine, literally 99% of the time, the companies go, oh, thank you. We'll just relax. We'll follow you. And then that is that thing where like once you have a system, people then want to be a part of it right. because then they're in for the experience. Yeah. And it makes it easier too for them, right? There's only a few of us glutton for punishment to go do things the hard way and figure it out. <laughs> and I'm one of them. Exactly. <laughs> On that note, like what were some of the other sort of like mistakes you made before you came to this process? Man, other mistakes we made. And the reason I'm focusing on this is I think like it's, it's so, when I work with creators, which by the way, I think I just had this idea where you should be working also with influencers and creators to do the same thing. And I'd love to connect you with, to a bunch of them because they should be doing events to right. facilitate meeting their audience. And this is just so perfect. But um, it's a problem a lot of creators are trying to solve. Right. And I actually think this is the future of building an audience because people want community. And a lot of people are doing experiments and trying to figure this out. Yeah, let me give you another. Yeah, here's the other one that came to mind as you're chatting there. It's this. Uh, and I'm going to base it again on another principle. I think as entrepreneurs and as leaders, uh, especially entrepreneurs, as we're seeking to start things, right? We want to know the right way to do it. There's got to be a right way. There's got to be a formula that's going to bring success, mm-hmm. right? All right. So here's where we made that mistake. So what do nonprofits do? They do these, um, they do these big vision dinners, right? The, the, the galas, right? And we took a stab at doing galas for three years. It created all of this sideways energy for, from our mission and brought in like very little money. Uh, I mean, it brought in money, which was good. It brought some new relationships, but not like was happening for the other nonprofit down the road or another another nonprofit across the country that was literally bringing in a few million in one night. My first event, we brought in a total of 60,000. Yay. (laughs) And back then that was a lot of money. And of course, some of our listeners were like, you brought in 60,000 in one night. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that was good. But then the next year it was 40. And then the third year it was 30, right? So that's turning in the wrong direction. Oh my God, we're going the wrong way. So here's what, I, here's what we learned in this is that we need to do things how we're wired, not how someone else is wired. If this is the model that every nonprofit is using, that doesn't mean we should go do it that way. We need to do it our way. We need to do it based on our value system, based on how we're wired, based on the strengths of who we are, not on them. 
And so finally, God, finally, after four or five painful years, we cracked the code on that. And now we have a model that works. And it works for who we are. It works for our value system. It works for our vision. It works for the hundreds of companies that we get to work with. Everyone wins in this system. And for us, it's because it's not all about us. We've created a dynamic where now it can still be about other people. It's what we get to do with people, not, hey, show up to our big event. That runs in the face, doesn't it, of what I just shared with you. Everything we're about is with. So why are we doing a gala that says come to? No, let's do something together. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be the other one, that we tried to follow the formulas of success in other nonprofits, and it wasn't who we all were. We had to discover who we were. We had to begin living our identity. And I think that even creators struggle with this, right? Like you'll go on Instagram and you'll see how someone's doing these photos where they have all these fancy photos looking to the side. And then suddenly, like, that's what everyone on Instagram is doing. And it's like, is there a reason for that or, or what's going on? Um, that's right. As a creator, it's so important to, like, know who you are and, and trust in that. That's right. Um, I'm curious because... The way you're describing it, I, I can tell like what you're really doing is you're looking at every part of the system, pulling it back to the first principles and seeing if you can improve it. Yes. I'm curious if there's other improvements or innovations that you've done. Because this this is to me, it's just fascinating how you've improved all of these processes that a lot of nonprofits probably for a long time just took that as a given. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me give you one that we're working on. If that's all right with you. Yeah, but I, I, I want to present, if you don't mind, I'm going to present the problem. And I don't, Sasha, if it's okay, I don't want to give the full solution because we are still piloting it. We're still learning it. And I don't want anyone to steal it yet. <laughs> okay, so let, let, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, so here's, here, here's, here's the big one. We're all familiar with food pantries. Doesn't matter what community or major community you go to in America, there are food pantries, right? That system was built out of the Great Depression. And it was a great system 60, uh, 70 years ago. Amazing system 70, 80 years ago. We live in a digital world now with e-commerce and virtually free shipping. Here's the problem with food pantries. People who are in poverty, number one, they're usually busting three jobs. If that's the case, if they're busting 60 to 80 hours of work a week to, uh, week to feed their kid, when do they have time to go to the food pantry between three and four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon? Because that's when they're open. They don't. They don't. Okay. I'm not saying no one goes. I'm just saying it's for the minority, not for the majority. So we've looked at this and go, geez, most people who are in poverty still have a cell phone. They can order food. Why aren't we drop shipping food to people who are caught in poverty across the country? Why am I not put, why am I not drop shipping food to children's doorsteps? Why not? I'm getting chilled hearing this. Right? Because I see where this is going. Okay. So, so yes. Are we in a beginning to innovate a new process? Yes. Because I want to see, I want to see food pantries remain. I still believe they have a, a place in society. I believe that deeply. So this is not a bash on food pantries. It's just, they're limited in today's world. We need to change the distribution system. And it's completely doable. 
So let's go, let's go innovate it. Let's go change it. Let's create the new systems and processes and then leverage the strength of food pantries even in this new system. What's interesting that too is like adding on to that, I just had this interesting idea where a lot of companies like Uber and Amazon are sort of trying to solve that last mile of delivery. Right. Um, and all of these companies want to give back. Right. So you could potentially yes. go to those companies and use what they've yes. done that already and combine it with what you're doing. Yeah, I don't have to go recreate the wheel. That's fascinating. It, all it is, all it is, is a, it's a sourcing of food, right? And then it's distribution. The biggest issue, there is so much food in, in the world. We, there is enough food in the world to feed the world. It's not a food issue. It's a distribution issue that is fully solvable. So let's solve it. And just so you know, it will be solved within the next three to five years. <laughs> so, and we're working on it today. And then once, it's, once we have the code, I'm happy to give it away. Take it. Because there's no reason any child in this country should ever go to bed hungry. And there's no ch- reason that 15,000 people a day should be dying in this world. No reason. The food's there. It's just a distribution issue. What's your drive or what drives you to do this work? I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you what I started with. And then I'm going to give you what's emerged from it. Here's what it started with. And if I get emotional, just bear with me, guys. It's this. I want to see people living their highest potential. I don't care who they are. I don't care how much money they have or don't have. I don't care the color of the skin. I don't care the race. I don't care the religion. I don't care. I want to see people living their highest potential. I want them living the values that are buried in the soul of who they are. That's what I want. And here's the second thing that has emerged out of that. And that's why, bro, when we talk about having empowered 65,000 volunteers across America, there are initiatives that we're working on now uh, within our organization to begin empowering these people to become an ongoing force for good. That's where my heart goes because it's about the whiff. It's about the width. It's not about what I can do. It's about what we can do. And when we do that together, the results are exponential. And here's where that goes. We've been talking a lot about um, generosity feeds. And what you need to know is that generosity feeds is actually an initiative of the Replenish Foundation. So when I started all of this, I started a foundation so that I could create an ecosystem of nonprofits and businesses that would serve each other to create more good, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the mission behind that organization. And that is that I am working to establish generosity feeds, or I'm sorry, I'm working to establish generosity as the new gold standard. A true generosity that inspires people and builds healthy communities. Because here's what I know. If companies across America were just to grow from greed to generosity, move the dial, ready? Oh, my fingers are crooked. (laughs) One or 2%, just move it one or 2% towards generosity, where companies who are giving 0% give 1% to social impact, where companies that are giving 1% start giving 2%, just move 1% the dial. We can solve every social issue that exists in this world. It's about mobilizing people to live what's in them. And so at the end of the day, we are working to establish generosity 
as the new gold standard. I love that. And I can, I, I can see the exponential scale that you're creating with that. Yeah. Yeah. You got my passion going there, man. That's amazing. Thanks for asking uh, the right question to get my heart on the table. I appreciate that. This was great. Um, I appreciate you being so open and switching gears a bit. Um, Because I think it's something like every creator deals with. So you start Generosity Feeds or Replenish Foundation. And I'm sure there was a point where you saw that vision. And you were probably working alone Mm -hmm. or maybe with a smaller team. And as a visionary, um, that's hard, right? When you don't have a team supporting because you can see what's in the future, but you can't do it fast enough. And I think a lot of creators and entrepreneurs struggle with that. Yes. What was that journey to building that team? Because it seems like you now have a really well-owned machine. And from the way you're talking about it, maybe some people will assume that it was just completely easy and everything worked out. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice, Sasha? (laughs) That'd be amazing. We we all wish for that, man. Oh, my goodness. And let me be honest. um, I know it sounds like it's just a polished machine now, and, and so much of what we do is, and yet it's not at the same time, right? We face the same growth challenges that every nonprofit and for-profit faces. You know, where the company has grown, we've grown 300% over the last three years. You better believe it feels like the wheels are falling off at times with, through that kind of growth, right? Mm-hmm. And then we need the funding to get the people on board to keep scaling it. I mean, those, these are the tensions, right? So to go back in the story um, and put this in perspective, this whole idea started around my dining room table with my wife, uh, myself, and our COO. That's where it began. It began with my kids cleaning boxes in the backyard with a garden hose. It, it began with my garage. I couldn't park my cars in my garage, and it was filled with stuff for the nonprofit. And then shit, I had semi-trucks showing up at my house to take out, to take out shipping arrangements. Crazy stuff, man. Absolutely crazy. And yet, the more we began living the vision, the more people were in passion, the more people caught the passion for what we were doing and started coming to us and going, how can we help? Now, in my world, I didn't have any money to pay him. I I wasn't paying myself back then. I didn't pay myself. Oh, my goodness. Let's put it this way. I didn't have a full salary, uh, Sasha, till two years ago, 24 months ago. And I I didn't have a full salary yet. That's six years in. Six years in. Most of that time was double dipping on jobs just so I could feed my own family. While you're feeding everyone else. Yeah. And I was paying other people before I was paying me, right? So, and and let me clarify that. I wasn't paying me. We have a board of directors that sets my salary and all of that. So I need to clarify that, right? But our COO, I've spent so much time talking about Aaron. Uh, He worked... Also, for six years, seven years without being paid. You talk about skin in the game. So I know that's different in the nonprofit sector than the for-profit, right? So there, there are some delineations there. But wow, did we, did, we, did we have to go through the dark night even there and in, in that tension and the many times that I have felt like, oh my God, am I going to get paid for the next month? And again, in the for-profit sector, everyone feels that too. We've, we all feel that as entrepreneurs. So what did that dark night look like? Wow. Oh God. Thanks for bearing with me. Thank you for being so open, but I can tell this is 
such an important part of the story. So I had to ask. Yeah. Um, here's what it meant. It meant me calling my dad in tears. And I said, I said this to him. I said, Dad, I feel like I'm not a man of faith because I'm scared out of my mind that I'm not going to be able to feed my own family. And here's what my father said to me. The only reason you're sitting where you're sitting today is because you are a man of faith. And what's faith? Simply, simply believing what we cannot see. I didn't call asking for money. I called asking for my father to just believe in me. And I was in my 30s. And I think we all need that. And he did. It, and it doesn't matter if it's a father, a mother, um, a, an older mentor, but someone that can look at us and go, you're only sitting where you're scared. You're sitting where you're sitting because you are a person of faith that is willing to believe what you cannot see. I'm getting chills hearing this. And I think it, it, as a creator, like when you're going at it, I think we all have this vision that like everything is perfect. It's not everyone goes through that. That's right. Everyone. What kept you going? Starts with that statement. And then it's this. It's realizing that millions of children across America are depending on me to make the $50,000 ask of one person the $5,000 the $5, ask of another person, the $5 invitation to another person so that they don't have to go to bed hungry. 11.7 million children in America are depending on me to do that. And that keeps me going along with the 65,000 that we've been able to work with so far, but the millions of Americans that deepen their soul they want to be living a meaningful life. They want to be living for a greater purpose, and they just need an opportunity to do it that's easy. Here we are. And you're making it easy for people. Um, We're making it easy. We've, we've removed the barriers. And then you've gone through fire to get to that point. It's the only way. It's the only way. People will say to me, Sasha, they'll say, wow, Ron, I just, I wish I could have your life. What they don't understand is what I just shared with you. They don't see the time that I walked into my living room and looked at my wife and said, I need to write a $15,000 check to the nonprofit. And I don't know if we'll ever see the money again, but I think it might be back in eight weeks. And then 12 weeks later, I walked back into the same living room and looked at my wife and said, by the way, the $15,000 check that we wrote to the nonprofit, it's not back yet, but I need to write the last $15,000 that we have towards the nonprofit because this vision has to fly. And she said, yes. How many dudes wanted to walk into their living room and actually write the check with their wife for the last $15,000 they have to their name? So what I say to people is if you're willing to pay that price, you can go do whatever you want. But you can't have my life unless you're willing to do that. And actually, they don't want my life. They need to go live theirs. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's the price tag, right? But I think your story can be an inspiration for people who are in their version of that moment right now. Yeah. 
Because that that is the path of creation. You have to go through it. You do. We all do. So this actually leads into something that you, another thing that you talk about is when someone who is um, a white collar professional who's successful, but maybe not feeling the significance in their life comes to you. Can you talk about that? Oh my goodness. So many. (laughs) Yeah, I can. Um, I was at a party a number of years ago and talking with a good friend of mine and we're just chatting face to face. His wife is standing right behind him in a conversation with, with some of her girlfriends. And he looks at me and he says this, he goes, Hey Ron, he said, I can't wait to to quit, to quit my job and work for a nonprofit like yours. And his wife whipped around and she goes, you can't do that until we get our kids through college. (laughs) We're like, how do women pull that off, right? <laughs> so, so, so here's what he was saying, though. My buddy gets paid extraordinarily well, right? He is highly successful, highly successful. And here's what he's saying. Ron, I'm successful, but I don't feel significant. And here's the beauty of what can happen. And this is the training that we provide to employees and to companies across America is this, is that any employee can find success in the soil of significance. In other words, you don't have to leave your job to find significance. In fact, I would propose that you need to stay in your job where you have a already have a strong circle of influence and find your significance in that. And then Unleash the significance of who you are through those relationships and the, and the influence you have, and you will see your success soar even higher, but this time with significance. In other words, you'll be significant feeling meaningful. You'll find a higher purpose to your success. So don't quit the job. Keep the job. But I can help you, and this is what I get to do with employees across the country in the keynotes that I give. I can help you find your significance in where you are. That's the power. That's amazing. Um, can, can you share some examples or stories that have come out of that work? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this one. Um, it's, it's not the person necessarily staying in their job, though they, but though they already understood um, success and significance in their role. But um, let me just give this to you. We had the opportunity to hire uh, the director of sales from Coca-Cola. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, who am I, right, to be hiring the director of sales from Coca-Cola? In fact, I was talking with this gentleman. Yeah, his name's Bill. He's on our team. And I said, Bill, like, I can't afford you. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, all you have to do is pay me golf money. <laughs> like, I've got golf money, buddy. All right. So here Bill is on our team. Now, Generosity Feeds, Replenish Foundation isn't the only thing he does. He's also doing executive coaching and a few other things as well. But here's a guy who has aligned, he's basically taking his expertise out of Coca-Cola and now impacting hundreds of people's lives through what he's doing with us and, and through his other position. But he, is, he has learned how to perfectly marry his success and his significance. He shifted 
from success to significance. And as a result, his success is skyrocketing all the more, just in a new way now, in a new field. So Phil is, um, is a great story of that. That's amazing. And, and I love what he said, which is, just pay me golf money. Pay me golf money. <laughs> like I can do, I can pay you golf money. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Bill's, Bill's, and he, he's one of our, um, I have the privilege of when um, business leaders come to us and say, I'm looking for executive coaching. He's one of the guys that I send our business partners to for executive coaching because he's just, he's the best of the best. Right. And so, um, yeah, and he's living it. That's the beauty with our coaches. Our coaches are living it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a testament to your vision that you've built this amazing team. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're almost at time. So two last questions. Yeah. So you've built this amazing team and, and done all of this amazing work. Five years out, 10 years out, what's, what's next for Generosity Feeds and Replenish Foundation? And, and where do you see this going? So people who are listening, if they want to help. Mm, wow, you've asked a loaded question. Um, here's what I see happening. Five years from now, I'll, I will still be with the Replenish Foundation. So let's just make that very clear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am now giving keynotes across the country. I'm kind of back to what I was doing when I was 27 and earlier, you know, um, the conferences and so forth. I... Um, I look forward to always serving with the Replenish Foundation. I can't wait for the day that I have enough income coming through my keynotes and the coaching that I do and the consulting I do to hand my salary back to the nonprofit. That's me personally. Can't wait, dude. Um, I want to be the largest investor in the Replenish Foundation. That's just where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Can't wait. That's coming. And I can't wait to be inspiring other people with that. You know, we're... When you're in that place someday, right, where I can sit down with you, Sasha, and just go, listen, this year, you know, my family and I, were personally giving $200,000 to the Replenish Foundation. Here's the remarkable stuff that's, that's happening. And if you're of that kind of wealth as, as well, I'm going to look at you, Sasha, and I'm going to go, and darn it, Sasha, I want you to join us in the story. Will you match me? Mm-hmm. I can't wait for that day, honestly, <laughs> because if we're sharing that as friends, you might look at me and go, wow, that's amazing, but I'm not at 200 yet. Can I do 100,000 with you? Right. Yeah, let's, 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 man, you know, put it up and let's just do this together. Right. So I, I, that's the day I look forward to. Um, I have some pretty significant players. I'm going to be very careful right now. Uh, I've been challenged pretty deeply by uh, an international leader to take this global. And I'm weighing that out. I mean, it sounds sexy, right? That I would even be approached at that. And it kind of is, I guess. Um, but it's also something that I'm really taking very, very seriously. And the, the approaches that you and I have talked about are, um, would not, they don't translate at the global scale. There's other pathways that we're looking towards global distribution of food. But I'm weighing that out, bro. And I'm, here's the question I'm asking. Am I the guy that needs to do that? I don't have an answer for it yet. Do you feel you're not or is there a fear or is there? Do I have what it takes? So you're, the question you just asked is, are you afraid that you don't have what it takes? That's the question you just asked. <laughs> is that the question you're asking yourself? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And, and yeah, it is. And I think it's um, with the right people. So let me answer it this way. Alone? No. 
together, yes. Because mm-hmm. every, everything in this conversation has come back to one word, with. With. Alone, no. Together, yes. Okay. And might I be the one to lead that with? Do I have what it takes to do that? Yeah. But not without the right people. We wouldn't have had this conversation today if it wasn't for the team that runs everything we talk about. I don't run anything, dude. I don't run anything. They run it all. Right? So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm weighing out. I can't answer that yet, but that's what's being weighed out. And then the second piece of that question is, is my passion for it there? Is the passion for it within me? And that's the deeper question. That's why I haven't answered it yet. I have to know that I'm willing to sacrifice and give up everything that I'm comfortable with to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I have no business saying yes to that vision that's been put in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I think um, as an entrepreneur, I don't, firstly, there, there's no right answer to that. And I think the answer also might be that there might be someone else or someone listening right. who might be that person to take that forward with you. Right. And if they were to call me or email me, I'm always open for that. I love people, right? So, so last question, actually, if someone's listening and maybe they're that person, or maybe they just want to thank you for all of the amazing stuff that you shared, um, where, they, where can they find you? Yeah, the easiest, um, easiest way to get in contact with me, and this comes right to me, is ron at replenishfoundation.org. That easy. ron at, at replenishfoundation.org. That's where you can find me, and I will be happy to personally answer uh, your email and, and probably even set up a call if you want that. So That's amazing. And, and we'll have all of that linked up in the show notes. Um, Ron, thank you for bringing so much um, openness to this conversation. Absolutely. We've known each other for two or three years and the, some of the stuff that you shared, I don't think I, I had known that. You didn't know, dude. I've, d- I've done a number of podcasts as, as, you, as you've seen. Mm-hmm. I got to be honest with you, Sasha, no one has taken me this deep. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you uh, for, for leading me to very deep places. I, I appreciate that deeply. Thank you for going there. Yeah. I think it plays well to the motto that you have with uh, conscious creators, and that's simply to make a life through your art without selling your soul. You've stated that so well, man. And I think part of that is that inner journey of knowing where everything comes from. And you've clearly been on that and discovered that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Sasha, thank you. Hey, it's Sasha again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.